softball, I uh, cut open my right eyebrow and I needed 21 stitches uh, to sew it back up. And so I had this enormous bandage on my uh, forehead uh, as I graduated. So that, that made it quite memorable, but it was also memorable because of how excited I was to finally be be done, uh, to finally be finished with all of my classes. My wife was also very excited for me to be done. Uh, she got her husband back after years of studying. But I, I remember being so excited uh, to introduce my wife to to my seminary professors. Uh, I was so excited because she'd been hearing uh, stories about uh, these men for years, about all that I was learning from them, how they were dealing with things in their own pastoral ministry. So she heard uh, all of the good, all of my also complaints about Greek and Hebrew and uh, everything else that comes with seminary. Uh, And at the graduation, I was just so looking forward to her being able to, to meet these men that it had such a profound impact upon my life. Uh, she had heard their names, but now she would be able to, to put a face with the names uh, of what she had heard uh, so much uh, about them. Uh, and some of you might be able to identify with that. Uh, have you ever looked forward to introducing two people? Uh, introducing them to one another. Maybe you were uh, excited for uh, your spouse to meet a boss uh, or like me for uh, a parent to meet uh, a teacher or something to that effect or even just two really good friends that you wanted uh, to get together and have them meet one another. Uh, at other times, introductions may be kind of on a, on a business uh, formal scale of uh, maybe there can be a mutual benefit uh, of introducing one person to another. And oftentimes introductions can be so important, so encouraging, so exciting. And generally speaking, we are ever more excited to introduce somebody who has made an impact upon our life. I was so excited to, to introduce my wife to my seminary professors. And as we come to to the Gospels, those four Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We, we encounter disciples of Christ who couldn't wait, who were so excited to introduce other people to Jesus. This man that they had, had walked with and followed, learned so much from and had their lives transformed, they wanted other people to know who he was. So they wrote uh, little mini-biographies of Jesus. Uh, and as we, we come to the last of these four Gospels in our New Testament, the Gospel of John, that is exactly what John the Apostle wants to do. He wants to introduce us to a man named Jesus, that he has come to know, that he has come to love, that he has come to follow and to give everything in following him. And uh, But within that, an important question to ask and kind of the question of the day is, why do we need to be introduced to Jesus? Why do we need to know him? Why is that so important to uh, those who already followed Jesus? And uh, why was it such a important thing to the Apostle John that he would write 21 chapters about Jesus? And as we, as we look at the Gospel of John today and as we begin to study it, we're going to do things a little bit differently, kind of uniquely. If you look at the, the, toward the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, I know that we'll, we'll get to the beginning next week, but John chapter 20 tells us why John is writing. So if you look, it would be John chapter 20, verses 30 
and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is what John wrote. That is the purpose of his gospel. He wants to introduce us to Jesus because he thinks that this introduction is of the utmost importance. Uh, And before we we jump into all of that we see in those verses and why uh, John is writing this to us, kind of unfolding that, I want to just pause briefly and look, look at who this man John is. He's actually, he never names himself in this gospel. He only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is pretty amazing, pretty, pretty humble to, to write a, a gospel, uh, and never have your name in it. Which gets kind of confusing because there's a whole bunch of other Johns, uh, in, in this gospel, but none of them are, uh, are the author, at least those who are named. Uh, and as we, we look at the life of John, he had a brother named James, uh, and they were sons of a man named Zebedee, and they were part of the family business. They were fishermen. And Matthew four eighteen to 22 shows that they were among the first disciples who were called by Jesus. Now you can turn there if you'd like, or you can listen. It's at Matthew four eighteen says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, speaking of Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So these these two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John, are the first disciples that that come and follow Jesus. They they hear the call. They uh, have already heard the testimony of John the Baptist, who said, "Look, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Now, and these brothers become the first disciples of Jesus. And Peter, James, and John would become kind of the inner circle of the twelve disciples of the twelve apostles. And they get to see and experience even more than just the, the group of 12 did. And Jesus had a, a special nickname for the sons of Zebedee, uh, for James and John, which hey, shows us, hey, nicknames are biblical, and they can be a good thing if Jesus did it, right? But but what Jesus nicknamed them was Boanerges, mean, meaning sons of thunder. Uh, and, and they got that name, not because they were passive or reserved, but because they were, they were brash, uh, they were, they were bold, they were uh, harsh, they, they were manly men who were quick to try and judge others. Uh, we see this most clearly in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. It says, when the days drew near to, for him, again speaking of Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So because he was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans wouldn't receive him in. They say, hey, you can't, if you're going there, you can't hang with us here in our town. So they sent them away. And James and John, these sons of Zebedee, have a response. They say, well, 
Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Lord, do you want us to handle this? We can take care of this right now. And Jesus says, no. He, he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. But, but that's the, the picture. That's why they're called the sons of thunder, because they were quick to act and kind of slow to think at times. Quick to, quick to re- respond uh, with machismo. And oftentimes in, in me- medieval art, how is, how is the Apostle John depicted? He's kind of this uh, effeminate man leaning back on Jesus, looking up at him, and, and, and that's kind of an inaccurate picture. Uh, James and John were, were fishermen, out in the sun all day, hauling nets, working long hours. They, they would have been, again, manly men. Uh, these weren't uh, soft, effeminate men. These were, these were men who were hardened by physical labor day in and day out. And that's why they got the name of Sons of Thunder. But as they began to follow Jesus, as they began to walk with him, changes began to take place in their lives. And that's what happens. As we begin to follow Jesus, he transforms us. His spirit dwells within us and molds us and shapes us so that we become more and more like Jesus. And this son of thunder gradually became known as the apostle of love. And that didn't happen overnight, but it happened as he walked with Jesus. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven and the ministry of the early church began, that was the the road of hard knocks for John and the other apostles. If you, if you read through the book of Acts, just note how many times they were arrested, how many times they were beaten. And when it, when it, usually when it says that, they were beaten with canes, not with feathers. Uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't tickled. They were beaten with, with rods. This would have been excruciating. They were arrested, threatened, and they rejoiced that they were able to suffer for the name of Jesus. That was in, in Acts chapter 5. John was always a key leader in the church, but usually behind Peter, and then later on behind Paul. John's brother James was also the first apostle to be martyred. Acts chapter 12, James was killed by the orders of King Herod. And all of the other apostles in time were also martyred. Peter and Paul were were killed under the reign of Emperor Nero and A.D. 65 and 67. And John outlived them all. you imagine that? Losing all of your your closest friends, your, your brother. As you follow Christ together, you lose all of your all of your family members who are following Christ with you. Eventually he was arrested and persecuted. And during his during the, the reign of Emperor Domitian, John was exiled from Ephesus, where he had been the pastor, to a small island called Patmos off of the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And that's where he he received the book of Revelation and penned it for us, and that was the closing of the New Testament. And that was around A.D. 90. And again, over over time, as towards the end of his life, as John was writing the gospel, as he was writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as he was writing Revelation, if you read those, a key theme in every one of his writings is love. That's why he's known as the Apostle of Love, because he was so transformed by walking with Jesus, suffering in his name. And he went from the Son of Thunder to the Apostle of Love. And, and love 
being the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Before John eventually died, he died around A.D. 90, he penned this gospel account, sometime between probably uh, A.D. 80 and A.D. 90. And these verses that we read tell us why he wrote them, why he wrote these, these 21 chapters to tell us about Jesus. Why is it so important that, that John makes this introduction to us? Why is it so important for us to know Jesus? And what we're going to see this morning is he gives two reasons in these verses. Number one, because we must understand who Jesus is if we are going to believe in him. We have to know who he is if we are going to trust in him completely. And then reason number two, because we will have eternal life if we believe in him. Eternity hangs in the balance on what we believe about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. That's why we begin in these verses rather than in the beginning of John, because we've got to understand why John is writing. He wants to make a personal introduction to us, the person of Jesus. Look with me as we just examine this first reason that John gives for making this introduction. First part of uh, verse 30, or all of verse 30. Says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So think about that. What we, what we have here in this gospel account are the miracles of Jesus kind of uh, mixed in with the teachings of Jesus. And John says that there were so many other signs that Jesus performed. So many others. And at the end of uh, chapter 21, verse 25, John says, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Because there were so many things that Jesus has done. But I didn't write about everything that he's done. I've chosen specifically certain miracles, and he's recorded them for us here in this gospel, which which goes to show that he's he's thought about all of this ahead of time. Sometimes uh, we think that the gospel writers are just kind of writing whatever came to mind, and they're just throwing it on the page, and then at the end, they're like, okay, I'm done. No, every single one of the, the New Testament authors had a plan before they put pen to parchment. They, they had an understanding of where they wanted to go, and we see this intentionality in John's gospel that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show signs, miracles that prove who Jesus is and that match up with what he has taught. And what we see in this book are are seven large miracles selectively chosen to point to and support what Jesus teaches in this gospel as well. The first sign, turning water into wine in the wedding at Cana of Galilee. The second sign, healing the son of a royal official. Then healing a, a lame man on the Sabbath, feeding the 5,000 and walking on water, healing a man who was born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, and then finally the culminating miracle is resurrecting his own self from the grave. Those are the, the seven signs that John has chosen to include in this gospel. And these specific miracles were chosen because they picture the spiritual truths that Jesus talked about. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he says, I'm the bread of life. That, that paints a picture. That helps people understand. Yes, I can, I can feed you physically, but even more so, he feeds us spiritually. And without him, we will not survive. 
We will not make it. He declares, I am the light of the world, and then he proves it by opening the eyes of a man who was born blind, by bringing light into this man's life, by removing the blindness, by allowing him to see. He says, yes, I am the light of the world. And what does light do? It enables us to, to see. It enables us to distinguish what is around us. It gives us sight and understanding. What, do, what can you know in the dark? Nothing. You're able to find furniture, though, as you stumble around, especially if it's been moved and you're not familiar with it. You're able to find that. But Jesus is the light of the world. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the grave after he had been dead for four days. All of these miracles picture what Jesus has taught. And they demonstrate that he's not just blowing smoke. That he is able to accomplish what he says. He connects the spiritual with the physical, the earthly with the heavenly, the eternal with the temporary. And John has selected the miracles in this book to demonstrate two things. And we see this in the first portion of verse 31. So he didn't include every miracle that Jesus has done. But these, speaking of those miracles, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See, these miracles were given for that twofold purpose. The goal of this biography is faith. The goal of this biography is that John wants us to read this and come to believe in Jesus. And not just a Jesus of our own making, but believe what about Jesus? He shows us the the, the content of what we are supposed to believe. And the object of what, who we are to believe in. This, this miracle, this book shows us that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, the, the, the person that the Jews have been waiting for. John is saying, hey, this is him. So this gospel was initially probably written to, to the Jews. So that they would hear, that they would see this was the Messiah who was promised. And secondly, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And again, so so John shows us that who should be the object of our faith and then the content of our faith. Jesus is to be the object and what we are to believe about Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God. And that's so important because we have to get both of those things right. We have to understand who Jesus is, what he done, what he has done. And what we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. There are a lot of people that believe in Jesus. Pretty much everybody believes something about Jesus. There are many, many people, Christians and non-Christians, who have some type of an understanding or a belief about Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus. Did you know that? They believe that he is a prophet, the sinless prophet, a healing prophet, a prophet who is able to work miracles. But what do they, what do they not believe? They don't believe the second part of what John is calling us to do, to believe. They don't believe that he is the son of God. But John here is saying, no, this is what you need to believe. This is what, this is what you need to know, to understand, to have life in him. That Jesus is the son of God, not just a prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a God and the first created being by God the Father, but they don't believe that he is co-eternal with the Father, that he is part of a, a trinity, a triune God who has created and rules over everything. 
Similarly, Mormons believe that Jesus is a created being and that we can someday become just like him. That someday you can rule a world if you do the right things. Others believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher. They believe that what he has said has some truth to it, has some wisdom. There's things that we should follow in what Jesus has said. Right? There's a good, uh, you know, do unto others as uh, you want them to do to you. Hey, secular people will agree to that. They say, hey, that's true. I want to live that way. But what they fall short on is calling Jesus God. They don't want to refer to him as such. And still others believe that Jesus is a liar and a charlatan. That he's just a phony. Someone who should be outright rejected. All of those are beliefs about Jesus. Every single one of them. And many others, including people in the church, believe in a Jesus of our own making. And we take a little bit of what the Bible says, and then we kind of mix it in with what we want Jesus to be. Say, well, the Jesus I believe in would never do that. He would never do this, or he, or he would never condemn this or that. But well, what have I done? I've, I've created an imaginary friend named Jesus. That's what I've done. He said, hey, my imaginary friend, he would never do that. But is that true? No. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the uncreated Son of God who came to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross to pay for sin, and then rose from the grave on the third day to pay for our sin, to save us, to seek the lost, to bring redemption, reconciliation, restoration, And all of these views of Jesus that I mentioned, can they all be true? No, it's impossible. They can all be wrong, or one of them can be true. That's just logically consistent. They can't all be right. Two of them can't be right, because those are those are conflicting. You see, you can't have Jesus be a a good moral teacher if he says that he's God. As soon as he he claims to be God, something has to to give. Because he can't just be a, a prophet or a good moral teacher, and say, I'm God. Because either he's he knows that he's not God, which would make him a liar, or he thinks he's God and he's not, which would make him a, a lunatic. Yeah, he's he thinks he's something that he's not. And if he's a lunatic, should we follow him? No, he's not worthy to be followed. So he, as soon as he claims to be God, he's either lying about it, he's crazy, or what he is saying is true. And if it's true then it demands our obedience. It demands our attention. That If it's true, then it it is of the utmost importance because he means exactly what he claims, that he is the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he is worthy of making any claim upon our lives. Those are the only logically consistent ways of viewing and evaluating Jesus' claims in this book. And sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And I would say, whoa, pause. Just read the Gospel of John. Just read this. Multiple times the Jews are ready to stone him, ready to kill him because they say he's blaspheming, because we see in John chapter 5 and John 8 that he's claiming to be equal with God the Father. And if that's not true, guess what? He is worthy of being stoned. He is worthy of being killed. If it's not true, yes. But if it is true, then something entirely different has come upon us, and we need to be ready to respond to the claims of Christ. We need to understand what he is calling us to 
because he is truly Lord. That's why, that's why John is writing this. Because this is of the utmost importance. What we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. And as we study this gospel, we're going to begin to see ways that our Jesus, the way that we have understood him, might be challenged a little bit. We might have one of those situations of, oh, I, I never thought Jesus would respond that way. I never thought Jesus would say that. And, and when that happens, when our understanding of Jesus conflicts with what we see in Scripture, something's got to give. And, and in that moment, what is it going to be? Are we going to change our understanding of who Jesus is based upon what Scripture says? Are we going to allow Scripture to inform what we believe about Jesus? Or are we going to to disregard Scripture and say, you know what, I still I have my Jesus over here and I like my Jesus. He leaves me comfortable right where I want to be. He allows me to do what I want to do. And that's cool. And you, you have the freedom to do that. You will ultimately one day have to stand before the real Jesus, not your imaginary Jesus. You'll one day have to stand before the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus that Jesus claims to be, and to give an account to him for what you have believed about him, what you have done in response and built upon those beliefs. We will all have to give an account one day for that for who we have believed in and what we have believed. The object and the content of our faith are so important. And we're going to get to see who Jesus is in this gospel. And that's what I'm, I'm so excited about. And may we be convinced ever more so of who he is as we go through scripture together. That's reason number one that, that John the Apostle gives of why this is so absolutely important that he introduces us to Jesus. And the second reason that he gives, reason number two of why this introduction to Jesus is so important, why he's writing this gospel, is because we will have eternal life if we believe in him. And the truth there, we have to keep in mind, if we believe in, if we have the right object of faith, Jesus of Scripture, and the right content of faith, meaning what Scripture says about him. But if we believe in an imaginary Jesus, that doesn't get us to heaven. That doesn't bring eternal life. If you look at the second part of verse 31, we see that this reason. It says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing through the act of believing in the Jesus of Scripture, you may have life in his name. And when he's saying that you may have life, he is speaking of eternal life. Not just life in this age, but life in eternity. And that is the message of the Bible as a whole. The message of all four Gospels, the message of John's Gospel that is that if we look to Jesus in faith, believing in him as our only hope for forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation, that we will be saved. We'll see this repeatedly. If you Let's, let's kind of work our way just briefly through John's, John's gospel. If you turn with me to John chapter 1. Look at verses 12 and 13. 
This is where, where John begins. He's going to lay this foundation of that by believing in Christ, we will have life. We will have forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation, adoption. That's what we will see here. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, the concept of believing, all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we believe in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. We're no longer spiritual orphans. That's good news, amen? He brings us into his family, gives us all the blessings of being children and part of his family. And that comes not because we've earned it, but because of faith. If you jump over to John 6, verse 35. As Jesus speaks to the crowd shortly after he has fed them. He says, Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the one who who satisfies us spiritually. Right? When you eat physical bread and drink literal water, what happens eventually? You get hungry again, right? Uh, and, and it doesn't take too long, depending on what you've eaten and how uh, frequently you eat. But Jesus says, if you come to me, if you, if you believe in me, you will never again hunger. You, you'll never be starving spiritually. I will feed you. I will provide for you. That's he is the bread of life. If you turn over to John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mentioned earlier about walking in darkness. And I, I joked about, yeah, we find furniture, but, but truly what is the experience of walking in darkness? It's not a pleasant experience. It's not. And some of you may be feeling like you're plowing through darkness in life. You don't know where you're going, what you should be pursuing. Sometimes uh, that darkness feels oppressive, like it's weighing upon you constantly. And, and the remedy for that, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of life. I am the one you need to look to. Not, not trying to create light on your own, but looking to the light of the world. John fourteen six. Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is also why it's so important. This is why, why John is writing this gospel, because not only is this an important introduction, this is the introduction of all introductions, because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to a restored relationship with God the Father. John 17:3 in his amazing prayer to God the Father. Look at how Jesus defines eternal life. He says, "And this is eternal life that they know you, speaking of God the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that that is eternal life." Over and over again we see 
that the, the goal of this gospel, that the, the goal of all that John writes is that we would believe and that because we would believe, what would we have? What would we obtain? Eternal life. And most famously, what, what's, what's the most famous passage in John? Talk to me. John 3.16. Let, let's turn there. Many of you know John 3.16, but let's begin reading in John 3.14. Let's, let's get a little bit of the context. Speaking to a Jewish leader named Nicodemus, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that is, again, why we need to know Jesus. John clearly states that anybody who looks to Jesus in faith will be saved. But but John, being that, that last living apostle, he was gradually looked to more and more as a leader in the church. And guess what he saw creeping into the church as he became older and older? False teaching. False teachers. So even though John is the, the apostle of love, he speaks very frankly about what is true and what is not true. You can, you, oftentimes, First John, uh, his longest uh, letter outside of uh, the gospel, uh, is referred to as distinguishing the saints and the ain'ts. If, if you read that, you, you'll be so convicted because John is continually saying, hey, a believer acts this way and somebody who doesn't know Christ will act this way. It's deeply convicting. doesn't mean if you sin once, you're an unbeliever, but he's saying, hey, if this is your pattern of life, you, you may not be following Jesus. John has no patience for false teaching, for things creeping in on the gospel. And he clearly states, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. But then on the flip side of that, if you don't believe in Jesus, there is consequences. There is a penalty to come because you have rejected what God has provided. If you, if you just look at verse 18 in John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Also, 336. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But what we see in the Gospel of John is that all of us are sinners. All of us have rebelled against our Creator, the God who has given us life and breath and everything. And then we have separated ourselves from God. And then when He provides a way to get back to Him, we have rejected that, rejected Christ. And John says that's why people will be condemned because. The goodness and faithfulness of God has been rejected. And over and over again, we see in this gospel that there are some who believe without really believing. That there's two concepts. That there's believers who, who truly believe and there's believers who, who believe in name only. We see that at the, the end of John chapter 2, it says that there were many who were believing in Jesus. 
kind of a play on words in the Greek. In the, the English translation, it says Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to them, but it's really Jesus didn't believe in them. They believed in Jesus, but he wasn't believing in them. He says, your, your faith's not genuine. He says, because he knows the heart of man. So all of this urges us to faith. All of this urges us to look to Christ, to trust completely in him. Our sin is deserving of God's wrath. Our rebellion is worthy of his punishment. But God, but God inspired John to write this gospel to show us a better way. A way to be forgiven. A way to, to have our sin debt paid for in full. There's a, a story of uh, an English nobleman uh, named Lord Congleton. He was a, a devout Christian who, in the 1800s who had many uh, poor living on his land. And he tried in many ways to share the gospel with them, but he, he found that it was hard to, to get them to see and understand and respond to the gospel, this offer of forgiveness, this offer of salvation, if only they would trust in Christ. And so he, he's thinking about, how, how can I teach them? How can I show them the gospel? And at last, he came up with a creative plan and carried it out. And he made up his mind. He gave public notice that on a particular day from 9 o'clock in the morning until noon, he would be in his office. And any any one of his uh, parishioners, any one of his tenants on his land, anybody who was poor and troubled by debts could come to him at that time and he would pay their debts. Say three hours this day. He has it uh, posted in multiple places. He signs every single one of the the posters. So as it is announced, everybody sees it, and people read it and they talk about it, and they wonder about it. But they couldn't tell. Well, what do I make of this? What do I make of this offer of forgiveness? This offer to have my debts paid. And at last, that day came. And at precisely nine o'clock, his carriage rode up to his office and he came with his steward and he got out and he went into his office and a crowd of people gather around outside and some of them are saying oh this is a hoax i don't believe any of this but the others say look that that that's his lordship's signature he's guaranteed to do what he has said and he has always meant what he says others say no there's got to be a mistake it can't be true and they talked on and on, and no one went in. But then about 11 o'clock, an elderly gentleman who lived with his wife in the poorhouse came along. And he owed some money which he could not pay. And so he came because he had heard about this offer, this offer to have your debts paid. And some of his friends tried to persuade him, hey, don't go. You don't know if that's true. You're going to embarrass yourself. He said, no, that's that's his lordship's name. And I'm sure he would never put his name on anything intended to deceive. So he went in and he spoke with Lord Congleton. He says, here's the bill for what I owe. I'm living in the poorhouse and I'm unable to pay it. And the Lord Congleton said, well, why should I pay your debts? And the elderly gentleman said, I can't, I can't give you an answer. But I saw this promise that you would forgive the debts. You would pay the debts of anybody who come. So I came. 
I had faith in your promise, so I came to ask. Right, said Lord Congleton. He said, steward, write out a check to pay this man's debts. And the, the elderly gentleman received, received this check. He, he looked at it. He saw that his debt had been paid in full. So excited. He says, thank you. Thank you a thousand times for your kindness. Now I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell my friends. But then Lord Congleton said, oh, no, no, no. Wait. They've got the same promise that you had. And if they can't trust me at my word, then they're not worthy to receive this. And so the elderly gentleman waited in the office for that remaining hour until the clock struck 12. And then he went out, waving the check overhead, pronouncing that he had been forgiven, paid in full for the debt that he had owed, that he was unable to pay. He says, three cheers for Lord Congleton. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. And as Lord Congleton was was exiting his office and going back to his carriage, a crowd quickly came and surrounded him. All of them lifting up their debts, waving them. Hey, Lord Congleton, here's mine. Here, take mine and mine and mine. But he quietly waved his hand and said, My friends, if you had believed my promise and brought your bills in time, they would all have been paid. But you would not trust me. And I can do nothing for you now. See, there is one who would pay our debts for us. Pay them in full. And it cost him dearly. It cost him his life. It cost him his blood. But he was glad to pay it. Not only is he willing to pay our debts, but he is able to heal the broken heart. To give hope to the downcast soul. To give a new beginning to all who believe. To make us a new creation, a new creature. No longer enslaved to sin, but now able to freely serve and love him. And that person is Jesus. See, God has written eternity on our hearts. All of us know that there is something after this life. You ever notice that? That all every culture around the world, they all know that there's something after this life. Something happens after we die. We're not sure what, and according to the different cultures. But all people know that there's something after this life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, yeah, God has written eternity on our hearts. And that's why the Apostle John, again, makes this so important. Because, again, what we believe about Jesus, just as important as believing in him, and who we believe in, what we believe in, will determine where we spend eternity. And some of you might be, might be here a, a little skeptical. Thomas, you've laid all of this out, but how do I know, how do I know that this is true? How can I really trust anything that John the Apostle says? How can I, how can I trust that this is true? That this offer is genuine to pay for my debts, to, to heal me, to give me hope, to restore my soul? Well, it goes back to a little bit of the context of this gospel. So John wrote this sometime between AD 80 and 90. And again, at that point in time, the apostle had already experienced and seen so much suffering. So much. Like I said, all of his fellow apostles had been martyred. 
by the time he had written this. He had lost his own brother. Might have been witness to some of those. Or he might have just heard it through the grapevine. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't deem himself to be worthy of dying in the same way that Jesus had. And it's reported by a historian, a man named Tertullian, that John, the apostle, was thrown into a a vat of boiling oil and that he came out of it unharmed. And that's why he was exiled. I guess that's what you do. When you can't kill somebody, you just send them off to an island. Not sure of the, the truth of, of that, but it's, it's a pretty amazing story by Tertullian. But John had seen and experienced so much suffering because he followed Jesus. Not, not as a, uh, on a, a side note, but he is suffering and seen all of his fellow apostles die because of their faith in Jesus and because they're choosing to follow Jesus. And, That's amazing. Shouldn't that shock us? Shouldn't that get our attention? That John has experienced so much suffering and seen so many other people die because of belief in Jesus. And now what is he trying to convince us to do? To believe in Jesus. You would think, why why would John want to do that? Why would he be trying to convince us of something that could cost us our lives? In the in the 1990s, I remember there was a a, a series of anti-smoking campaigns. Anyone remember those? Uh, the, the commercials uh, and the the commercials trying to to show the effects of smoking on your health. And they had uh, people who had been smoking for years and years on the in these commercials, and they would you know they would share about how they have lung cancer now, or how they had to have a, a windpipe installed. Uh, in their neck so that they could breathe. And and if I can speak honestly, those commercials terrified me. As you see it, like, I don't want that. I'm not touching cigarettes. And it was amazing because those people in the commercials were, were happy to go on and warn other people about the dangers of smoking, right? They say, hey, please don't do what I have done. Don't do... Don't be become addicted to cigarettes and smoking as I have been. They were happy to to warn others so that they wouldn't follow and experience the same fate. But what's interesting here, from a human perspective, you might expect the Apostle John to do what? If he's experienced so much suffering from following Jesus, what might he say? Don't follow Jesus. Avoid that guy. That's what you would expect, right? On a human way of thinking. But but that goes to show us just how important this is. Where John is saying, this has cost me everything. And this has cost so many other people I know everything. And you need to believe it too. It's pretty amazing. And that shows us that this has to be true. If this was a hoax concocted by the disciples of Jesus, that he he never truly resurrected from the grave, would you go to die for a hoax? No. Would you be tortured for a hoax? No. None of that would, would take place. 
And if the claims of Jesus in the pages of Scripture, all that we're going to read and study in the Gospel of John, if they are false, if they are not true, then yes, we should warn people not to follow Jesus. Because if it's not true, and it could cost us our lives, we don't want to do that. But if it is true, if what Jesus says, if what Jesus claims in these pages, that he is the Son of God, and that salvation is only found in him, there is absolutely nothing more important than understanding that, than being introduced to him and introducing others to him because eternity hangs in the balance. That's why we're reading and studying this gospel because this is of the utmost importance. The Apostle John is urging us to follow Christ no matter what the cost. If it costs us our life, if it costs us our job, If it costs us all of our friends and family, is it worth it? Absolutely. Because there is something greater than this life. Eternity. And if we truly want to have hope, healing, restoration, reconciliation, meaningful and right relationships with others, then we have to come to know Jesus. Not on our terms, but on His. Not a Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus who is Lord of all. So I'd ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? And not just do you believe, but what do you believe about Jesus? Those are two very important questions. And two questions that every single person is someday going to have to answer. Do we believe and what do we believe? And if you're here today and you you may be saying, I want to know Jesus. I don't know him, but I want to know the person that you are describing. And I see the importance of knowing him and understanding what the Bible says about him. I would urge you to look to him in faith. Because this is the most important decision that you will ever make. John is making the most important introduction that anyone could ever make. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I would urge you to look to him in faith. And it's as simple as ABC. Acknowledge that you have been in wrong relationship with him. That you have been separated from him because of your sin. And then B, believe. Believe that only Jesus can heal that separation between you and God. And then call upon Jesus, asking him for forgiveness. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of what he has done. Because of who he is, the Son of God, and his willingness to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, to rise up from the grave, showing that his sacrifice was accepted, going into heaven, and then, as we'll see in the Gospel of John, that he has now sent his Spirit to dwell in us, to lead us, to guide us in this life, so that we may be healed and have hope in this life and in the life to come. I'm so looking forward to just the coming each and every week for the next year, two years. I'm not sure how long it'll take. Uh, we'll take some breaks in there. But just coming each and every Sunday and getting to look together at who Jesus is, to come and worship our Savior. It's going to be a sweet time. And may we grow, come to know Jesus more and more intimately each and every week. Not just on Sundays, but each and every day of the week as we scatter into our community, into our neighborhoods, because if this is what is most important, what do we need to do? 
we need to go and make some introductions as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you acknowledging that you are who you say you are. You are the Son of God. Lord, you have not been created. You are the creator. You are the one who has given us life and breath and everything. You are the one who sustains us every moment of every day, who has provided for us every waking hour of our lives. Lord, you are the bread of life. And may we look to you, may we realize that we need you just as much as we need food. We need you as the source of light, the one who shows us how to understand the world around us. Lord, we need you as the light of the world. And Lord, we believe in you as the resurrection and the life, the only way to God the Father, the one who is able to give us life, eternal life in the future, because you demonstrated that with Lazarus and you demonstrated that in your own resurrection. Lord Jesus, we come to you asking that you would bless and guide our study of your word in the coming weeks. Lord, that you would help us to see who you are, what you are calling us to do. And Lord, I just ask and pray, even in my own life, that your word would reign true, that you would correct any and all of our misconceptions of who you are, that we would not create a Jesus of our own making, but Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, bowing our knee in worship, in thankfulness, in adoration, because of the free offer that you give to us, that if we believe in you, that we can be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel being written to us, for us, that we might believe in you. And may you increase our faith to your glory, honor, and praise. Amen.